You're listening to the Stage and Story podcast, a show about story, culture, and the Christian imagination. I'm your host, Dane Bundy, president of Stage and Story and secondary principal at Providence Academy in Johnson City, Tennessee. Hey, friends. On today's episode, I'm going to be sharing a talk with you from one of our informal stage and story gatherings. This gathering was actually recorded over Zoom. It was live, and Pastor Brandon gave a great talk on the Christian imagination. He talked about some of the problems that he he sees that could potentially stunt our growth, but he also spoke about some solutions that I think are very encouraging. I hope you enjoy. So Dane told me to say everything I'm about to say. It's just in my voice. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So what is the Christian imagination? Um, So Chelsea and I and Dane did a podcast some time ago about the Christian imagination. So this is sort of a recap based upon that. And if we were to talk about imagination in itself, I think we were talking about taking the conceptual and making it visual. Just right, real simply, the conceptual becomes visual. Um, now, when we talk about a Christian imagination, is there such thing as a Christian imagination? Uh, Dane and I have had discussions like, at what point is something Christian and something just what it is? Like, is there Christian cooking? Is there uh, Christian book binding? Is there Christian making your bed? Um, sometimes you make a bed, sometimes it's a Christian way. I don't know, but when it comes to imagination, there's definitely a Christian imagination and listening to Chelsea who helped like expand my thinking on this and just kind of having some time just to like let this sink in more. I realized like imagination is actually pretty foundational to our belief as Christians because it starts right away in the Bible. And in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Um, And then when we go to day six, Day six is the most important day of the creation narrative because day six is as long as days one through five put together. And in an ancient text, instead of using underlines or bold typeface, you would just make something really long to emphasize its importance. So day six is the climax of this creation. And there, at the very heart of it, we see God saying, let us make man in our image. And so here is the invisible God wanting to become visible. Or if you kind of go back to our basic definition, a conceptual being made visual, uh, God is not just a simple concept, of course, but God is not visual, but God wanted to be visualized in this aspect of creation, his His creatures. and. Um, What then the Bible story goes on to show us is how we marred and ruined this image of God. Uh, Rather than than expanding the imagination of who God is, we have constricted it. And Paul tells us that we, um, we turned to idols and that we made images of the created things and we shunned the glory of God. Uh, that's what it means to fall short of the glory of God is rather than um, exemplifying his image to the world, we instead reduced the idea of God into the images of things that he had made. So we've really restricted him. And so the tragedy of human history is that we have not allowed the imagination of God to take shape in our own lives. Instead, 
we've decided to restrict imagination to what we can get out of the created world. And in the process, we have therefore limited our lives to the boundaries of finite creation. Uh, so therefore we're more beast-like, we're more uh, of the created world than we are more God-like because we have gone toward that, that image rather than the image of God. Um, and I love how Chelsea brought up, and I thought ever since she said it, I've been seeing it everywhere when I was reading Jeremiah, um, that God held the Israelites, like you have been conducting worship practices that never even entered into my mind. Like your, your imagination is gone the ex way different direction. It's, it's opposite God. It's anti-Christ. And that's, that's where we are. So we were the icons of God, the images of God or, um, N.T. Wright, someone mentioned him earlier, so we'll just quote him. He rather boldly has said, we were the idols of God. Not that God, not that we were to be worshipped as idols, but we were the images. We were his imagination. We were the image of him so that the world can imagine what God is like through us. But um, that doesn't mean that we are God. That doesn't mean that icons are God. It's just simply a window. Uh, in the same way you have icons on your phone, you, the icon of Facebook is not Facebook. It's a window into Facebook. God made us to be these windows, these access points for the creation and for the nations to get to know uh, the, their creator. Uh, but we, we decided to let that access point end, start and end in ourselves. Um, but then we have the incarnation of Christ who comes and Colossians says that he was the image of the invisible God. So he is what we were supposed to be. Um, Hebrews chapter one, verse three says that he was the um, exact imprint of God's nature. And so we see the, the image of God restored in Christ. And, um, and then Christ is passing that on to the church. And he's trying to replicate God's image in us. So the church should be, in carrying God's image, uh, this window, this access point to seeing the great unimaginable, uh, undefinable, unlimited being of God. And therefore, our lives, part of our work here on earth, is to get ourselves aligned with this likeness of our creator so that we begin to live if we live like him, then we will live lives that are far more interesting, far more beautiful, and far more creative and imaginative than what worldlings, if you use C.S. Lewis language, than what worldlings can possibly imagine. It's, it's like they're stuck. And in fact, in um, the early church, we see records of uh, the pagans being interested in Christianity because to them, it opened a window into a new reality that pagans couldn't imagine. And that pagan Romans were getting very tired of their strict and boring liturgies in their pagan temples. Theirs was such that if you misquote a prayer, you were in danger of the wrath of the gods coming upon you. Everything was scripted, <clears throat> formulated. Uh, I don't mean in the sense of like Catholic church might have like a scripted liturgy, not like that. I mean, like everything had to be to the T or you would not get the God's favor. Um, and so Christianity comes and brings a whole new concept of what it means to live in a kingdom, not this dictator Caesar, not these pagan gods, but this totally different way of living. Um, and so Christianity was drawing people by this like mind blowing, what, there's another way to be human. There's another way to do this. 
So when I'm talking about us being in the image of God and therefore imagination, bringing the invisible God into the visual, we don't just mean it's through our creativity, like on a canvas or on a stage, those things matter too, but it starts with our own lives being this unique expression, this unique drama, this, this different angle that, that worldlings have not considered before. We have a new alternate kingdom. We have a new news. We have a new hope. So um, that's, that's where I'm looking at for Christian imagination. Its starting point is in the fact that we are carriers of the image of God and um, producing that in our lives. Do you want me to pause there before I go to practical section? It's probably a lot to kind of rest in. Yeah, that was really, that was great. Um, did anyone have any any questions or thoughts before he moves into kind of the practical? I've asked him also to talk about, as Christians, how do we then cultivate this type of imagination? Um, and also with, you know, with our children. Well, I, I remember at the Stage of Story conference, was that about a year and a half ago now? Uh, Brandon, you spoke and... Uh, you said something that's stuck with me ever since. It said something to the effect of that the, the Christian story came along and just beat the pants off the pagan story that had come before it. And, and I, th I think that does a really good job of, um, if, you're, if we're talking about um, passing things on to our, our kids and things like that, um, that's kind of what the gospel can do without much help from ourselves. But Sometimes we, you know, storytelling is the sort of thing that um, can bring that, um, I guess, to the fore, make it obvious, make it um, something that people actually want to be a part of and actually want to listen to, um, you know, and, and elements of that storytelling pop into pop culture all the time because I feel like even the most secular storytellers know a good story when they see it and they end up retelling at least parts of the gospel without realizing it. I don't know if any of that made any sense, but uh, take it from there. <laughs> yeah, well, that's good. And, and Roger, you, um, when you picked up on that idea, what, what has struck me is just the reality that, um, you know, becoming in tune with God uh, exp expands the opportunities for the imagination uh, there is there's freedom for the imagination when we are in Christ, which sometimes seems counterintuitive. Uh, often when we, you know, when our culture speaks about Christianity, they speak of it as being kind of restrictive, um, you know, be, because we have very specific beliefs. But what you're saying, Pastor Brandon, is that, you know, the, the Christian imagination um, actually like you know, is far more expansive than, you know, the pagan imagination. Is that some, is that similar to what you were trying to say? Yeah. Yes. And actually I, I have a little bit more on that to come. Yeah. Okay. Great. Okay, cool. Yeah. Um, so growing Christian imagination, how do we, how do we do that? So Dane asked me to talk about some challenges and maybe ways I've been seeing it come about um, as he, as he fixes his shirt stage and story is a great way. Yeah. <laughs> that was an accident. <laughs> uh, there you go. So um, growing the Christian imagination, some challenges that I've been experiencing in my own life is first, 
admiration and applause. Mm. Uh, if if we're if we're creating and we're bringing about our imagination in order to get admiration and applause, like oh, let's blow these worldlings' minds with this. That may not be the best place to start. Um, the gospel in itself will draw some admiration. It will also draw some hatred. Um, but it, it it does not need my attempt to adorn it, my attempt to stand on it and say, hey, look, I'm just like, I'm I'm really, we Christians have the creative corner of the galaxy. And um, we need to make sure that we don't go forward in what we're doing so that we get admiration and applause. Because what actually ends up happening is we're starting, we'll start to look at where is imagination and creativity getting attention. And then we will sort we'll begin to align our hearts toward those things and just kind of sprinkle a Christian flavor on it. Um, I'm I'm getting really I'm only 35, so I I don't want to become a crabby old man, but um, I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm getting very tired of a version of Christianity that's like, well, we're gonna imitate culture and sprinkle Jesus on top of it. Um, that's basically saying we're pagans. We just have one more God. And mm-hmm. I would rather us not aim for admiration and applause um, and actually produce the authentic original portrayal of the gospel, which obviously leads to the question of how do you do that? <laughs> um, but it's, so before we get to that, though, it's, it's sort of helping pave the way there is we don't. So our challenges are that we're. Um, Seeking admiration and applause. Another challenge would be self-conscious creativity. It's it kind of goes hand in hand with this, but that we don't want to aim to try to be creative. I think we can overdo it when we do that. Um, at the end of Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis has this amazing quote. Uh, in its larger context, it, to be fair, he's talking about how do we become this new creature, this new self that we are in Christ. And he talks about, well, don't try to uh, seek out your new self in Christ. By seeking it out, you're actually going to become something fake. But in his explaining that, he uses uh, creativity as an example of what he's trying to say. And this is what he says is, no man who bothers about originality will ever be original. Whereas if you simply try to tell the truth without carrying two pence how often it has been told before, you will nine times out of 10 become original without ever having noticed it. So look for Christ and you will find him and with him, everything else thrown in. So I think one of the challenges is that we actually get too creation oriented, too imagination oriented, and we can actually lose the very thing we're trying to be by aiming for that. It's that's a very it's a very mild way of talking about idolatry in a sense. We can make creativity and idol uh, and imagination its own end, and that would be idolatry. We are actually trying to show the creativity and image of God himself. So what we produce needs to be like that icon, like that window of bringing viewers, listeners, uh, people's attention to God himself. So if we seek him, then everything else will be thrown in. God is infinitely imaginative and creative. I think if we portray him clearly, we will wear the traits of imagination and creativity.
so that's, that's um, those are two challenges that we don't aim for applause, admiration, and that we don't aim to be self-consciously creative. Um, so what would be, uh, that's, that was a very thought provoking um, uh, last two points. What would be, well, that, was, that, that was a challenge. I have a solution, but. Oh, good. Cause I was like, okay, now you just leave me in despair, man. My whole life. No, I'm just kidding. I feel so Here's arrested. The question you didn't ask. <laughs> uh, yeah. So some solutions. So this is where um, I'll be honest. Um, I don't, I don't, I don't sit here and consider myself an expert on things creative and imaginative. I'm told by Dane that I got great. I'm arresting. Um, uh, Sarah, who couldn't join, uh, recently told me, and I had no idea, but she just texted me like, "I'm one of the best storytellers she's ever heard." Like, really? Like, I don't, I don't go around considering myself this way. So, I guess one of the reasons I'm saying some of this and what I'm about to say is, I'm. It's awkward because I'm trying to self-reflect on what does this mean for me? And partly, I don't know. I, I, I don't, um, I'm not, maybe, maybe, well, so here's some of my solutions. And I, I don't know if they're perfect, okay? But um, this is what I've kind of been soul searching. And I think these are some ideas we can go forward with. And please, these are great to discuss if that's where this leads. So some solutions. Number one, his, historical and liturgical worship. This one that uh, makes me nervous because historical and liturgical worship. I'm I've been raised in Calvary Chapel. I lead a Calvary Chapel church. We are, you would assume, we're not very liturgical. Meaning, we don't have like these red prayers and this great high and holy celebratory Eucharist moment, and um, we don't have all these garbs and rituals and and you know physical functions. Uh, we we sing praises to God. We pray generally spontaneous from the heart prayers and we preach the scriptures and we take communion as uh symbols of reminding us of what he has done for us um so when i say historical and liturgical worship i don't mean we become catholic or anglican or orthodox or high lutheran or high episcopalian like i don't i don't mean that um but I, I am reflecting and wondering if sometimes we are overemphasizing this individual mystical self-expression in our worship. And so I want, I'm on a journey, I'm wanting to find the balance in this. And so let me show, so my thinking is this, um, not to be too critical of what's out there right now, but when we look at culture as a whole, we don't see Christians leading with the imagination. Part of that's because Christianity's lost some of its respect, but I'm also wondering if part of that's because we are driven by self-expression worship in Christianity. Um, it seems like since World War II, there's been a dearth, like where are the C.S. Lewis's and the J.R. Tolkien's leading Christianity? Uh, since them, it hasn't been a lot of real deep imaginative narratives that are being thrown out there, at least that I'm aware of. Um, and um, at the same time, it was when World War II ended that this unstructured self-expression worship was driven. Uh, we began to see the collapse of institutions. Uh, the evangelical movement really took off uh, as the strong arm of Christianity in America 
And, um, and then like today we're seeing churches that are built to win uh, as many people in church as we can, or we're orienting ourselves around making people feel comfortable, or we're catering to selves, individual selves, and not into building and growing souls. And um, while there's some great motives in some of this, one danger is that these kinds of churches will never grow beyond American thinking and values because we're trying to make the American comfortable. So instead of portraying the alternative kingdom we claim to be, we're trying to be as American as we can be and make other Americans as comfortable as can be, which is a good, which maybe is a fair starting point, but we have to at some point get to this image that God's calling us to be. Uh, so I'm wondering if like somewhere in this shift toward win as many souls as possible at whatever cost, no matter what the means, has in a sense sapped um, our originality because we're trying to as much as possible be like everyone else with different beliefs. Um, just, a, just a thought out there. Um, so, um, of course, we know that Tolkien was a Catholic. Lewis was an Anglican. They're both from these historic high liturgy uh, expressions of Christianity. Uh, the apostles were incredibly creative. We may not read the Gospels and think, oh, what a creative story, because it doesn't read like Harry Potter. It reads like ancient creativity. And the Gospels and the letters of Paul, they're all amazing and beautiful in their ancient context. And if you know how to read them, even still today, right? Um, but here's what's, here's what's been blowing my mind lately in my readings. I've been reading some of the early church fathers and I'm realizing that they invented language to communicate the gospel. Like they found that the words that existed in the Greek language were not living and imaginative enough to express the Trinity and the incarnation. And so the reason, part of the reason we had all these councils through church history talking about these two themes, what does it mean that God is three persons in one essence and mean that Christ was two natures in one person. The fact that we've had all these councils and declared heresies on this over some very, very finite language is because the early Christians were trying to explain something that was blowing language's ability to express. And so they're pushing the boundaries of language to its extreme limits. And to the point that the Apostle Paul, um, I had read recently, actually invented words to explain our experience in Christ. Uh, here's from um, a book by Rankin Wilburn. He says that Paul actually invented new words to describe our new reality. The phrases crucified with, raised with, buried with, and seated with are each a single word in Greek, beginning with the prefix sin, S-Y-N, meaning with. Those words didn't exist before Paul coined them, but something so unique had happened that there were no words for it. A new vocabulary was necessary. It was the only way he could describe who he had be because of Jesus. And I thought that's really amazing is that the early church was stretching language because it wasn't enough. Paul's inventing words. Um, Maybe if we, yeah, I, yeah there, you, there you have it. Um, also, part of like the newness of historical worship is that um, the early church was producing virtues, 
that the Greek and Roman world did not consider virtues. So now they're, they're creating new virtues that weren't um, in the human imagination. Of course, they were always there because virtues are about who God is. But so, for example, patience was a virtue the early church prized. Romans did not see patience as a virtue. So here they're, they're again, they're living in a different world. Um, patience, they wrote more, more documents on patience as a virtue than they did on how to win lost people to Christ. That blows my mind. Patience was more important to them than evangelism. Uh, and then second, um, humility was another virtue that was not applauded in Greek, the Greek and Roman world. Uh, but yet humility was something that this new group of people are starting to express who God is, his image in this new way of living. Um, Augustine um, or Augustine, he, uh, he rethought the virtues in a whole different way. He took the four cardinal virtues, which was known in the Greek and Roman world and reinterpreted each of them through the virtue of love saying, you know, there's a new and better way to practice these virtues. And um, mainly the early church you know, they took what exists in the Greek world, the virtues, but see the Greek world uh, venerated their heroes for their virtues. But the early church was saying, yeah, we're going to, we're going to say you got these virtues because they're the image of God, but we don't exemplify the heroes. We exemplify or we exalt Christ who is embodying this essence of God, these virtues. And so um, they became really for the early church, the virtues that they were living became part of the image of God in their life. So just, just kind of a, a little brief, like, like just a glimpse at how the early church was using creativity imagination, not because they were trying to be creative, but because they found what they're holding in their faith. Language was limiting it and they, they couldn't quite express it as well as they wanted to. So maybe for us, a historical and liturgical worship looks like um, going back to what were the early church fathers teaching, like really understanding what is the incarnation? What is the Trinity? Rather than this kind of modern, we're just going to try to make this easier to digest. Easier to digest means we're going to let our American language do justice to who God is. It wasn't good enough for the early church. And when I say liturgical worship, I do mean like, it's interesting that, um, yeah, our, whatever our churches do, every church has its liturgy, but we need to make sure that in our own lives, like the way that we're walking Christ is that we have a, a worship structure that continually pulls us into his story rather than us continually telling God about our story. I love you so much. I want you in my life. Um, those are great. But we also have to allow ourselves to have a worship structure that's about his story coming down to us, his story forming us. That's why we pray the Lord's Prayer, um, because it forms us. That formed prayer forms who we are as we pray it. So we don't just pray whatever we want. We also pray what we're taught to pray. And so I think the more that we allow God and his worship to form us, then we will begin to have that image. and imagination will become inherent in the Christian community. So that's one solution, historical liturgical worship. Uh, second solution might be the affections, Dane. That's, that's the third part you wanted me to talk about. 
I am so sorry. I realize I am talking way too much. It's all good stuff. Yeah. Yeah, I know you're all going to say, it's okay, because you're also polite, but. No, no, it's okay. <laughs> um, the no, effect. I... So number two is the affections, and we can circle back on any of these. Um, the affections. So um, a lot of this, um, Dane texts me that he's been thinking a lot about the affections in Christian life. And I said, dude, that's such an important theme that I've thought about only in like the last year and a half. And if you guys want more, James Smith, uh, technically James K.A. Smith, has written um, some fantastic stuff, some, um, you know, seminary level stuff, and then some more pop level stuff on the affections. His pop level book is You Are What You Love. And his, his writings are really important, I think. Um, he says this, worship is the imagination station that incubates our loves and longings. So worship, so to step up, one more step from we need historic liturgical worship is we need worship that is an incubator for the imagination station. Uh, and those, the imagination is coming from our loves and our longings. Hmm. So um, I'm going to read, I'll read two quotes from, for you guys and then we'll kind of close this off. Um, our wants and longings and desires are at the core of our identity, the wellspring from which our actions and behavior flow. In other words, he goes out of the way to say, we're not thinking beings. We're not brains on a stick. We are desiring beings and who we are and what we do is all driven by a longing. It's not driven by knowledge. It's driven by a longing. Our wants reverberate from our heart, the epicenter of the human person. Thus scripture counsels above all else, guard your heart for everything you do flows from it. It's Proverbs four. Another quote. Because the heart is the existential chamber of our love, and it is our loves that orient us towards some ultimate end or tell us, um, it's not just that I know some end or believe in some tell us. More than that, I long for some end. I want something, and I want it ultimately. It is my desires that define me. In short, you are what you love. You are what you love because you live toward what you want. Mm. He then um, very, very interestingly breaks down one of the biggest temples in American culture, the shopping mall. And he shows how the entire orientation of the shopping mall is built like an ancient temple. It's structurally built to gather people. It has images and icons. It has priests, cashiers. It has all of these, the same things just in a very, it's all stripped down to the materialistic. And he talks about how when you shop um, or when you go to sporting events or when you go to concerts, all of these things have a liturgy that are teaching us how to do and they're telling us what to love. And so that as we do these things, it's our bodies and what we're doing that is complying with our desires. Um, so the affections uh, are really important. We have to be really careful about what, what loves and desires and longings are leading our lives because that's where our imagination will take place. Um, I have been... When I was a kid, I was very imaginative about baseball. I had and I created my own fictional leagues. Uh, I had I had these imaginary teams detailed down to what they're like, their personalities, and I played these leagues. I was a crazy kid um, because I had a longing for baseball. I I literally ate, 
drank and slept and breathed baseball. Um, I would have made the major leagues if God had given me a better body. That's <laughs> That was my goal. Um, why? Why was I so imaginative about it? Because baseball captured my heart. I had this longing for it. And so all of that was poured into it. And I'm wondering if we need, um, just as a church as a whole, if we need a better worship that involves the whole being, and then we'll see our longings for the kingdom and this great imaginative approach to the gospel and our story will follow organically as um, the affections lead. Um, I think we can, when we're leading with the head, we turn theology into stale definitions. We can argue over these petty little things, um, but the affections are what will really bring and capture the imaginations of people because that's, that's what drives who we are. So I'll, I'll stop it there. Well, this closes our time for the Stage and Story podcast. I'm Dane Bundy, your host. Thank you so much for listening today and just want to encourage you to check out our website, stageandstory.org, for more resources on cultivating the Christian imagination. Now, may Christ be the center of all our thinking and imagining. See you next time.